Chapter twenty four, part five of the Deline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter twenty four The Retreat and Death of Julian, part five. The esteem of an enemy is most sincerely expressed by his fears, and the degree of fear may be accurately measured by the joy with which he celebrates his deliverance. The welcome news of the death of Julian, which a deserter revealed to the camp of Sapor, inspired the desponding monarch with a sudden confidence of victory. He immediately detached the royal cavalry, perhaps the ten thousand immortals, to second and support the pursuit and discharged the whole weight of his united forces on the rear-guard of the Romans. The rear-guard was thrown into disorder. The renowned legions, which derived their titles from Diocletian and his warlike colleague, were broken and trampled down by the elephants, and three tribunes lost their lives in attempting to stop the flight of the soldiers. The battle was at length restored by the persevering valor of the Romans. The Persians were repulsed with a great slaughter of men and elephants and the army, after marching and fighting a long summer's day, arrived in the evening at Samara, on the banks of the Tigris, about one hundred miles above Ctesiphon. On the ensuing day, the barbarians, instead of harassing the march, attacked the camp of Jovian, which had been seated in a deep and sequestered valley. From the hills, the archers of Persia insulted and annoyed the wearied legionaries, and a body of cavalry, which had penetrated with desperate courage through the Praetorian Gate, was cut in pieces after a doubtful conflict near the imperial tent. In the succeeding night, the camp of Carci was protected by the lofty dikes of the river, and the Roman army, though incessantly exposed to the vexatious pursuit of the Saracens, pitched their tents near the city of Dura, four days after the death of Julian. The Tigris was still on their left, their hopes and provisions were almost consumed, and the impatient soldiers, who had fondly persuaded themselves that the frontiers of the empire were not far distant, requested their new sovereign, that they might be permitted to hazard the passage of the river. With the assistance of his wisest officers, Jovian endeavoured to check their rashness, by representing that if they possessed sufficient skill and vigour to stem the torrent of a deep and rapid stream, they would only deliver themselves naked and defenceless to the barbarians, who had occupied the opposite banks. Yielding at length to their clamorous importunities, he consented, with reluctance, that five hundred Gauls and Germans, accustomed from their infancy to the waters of the Rhine and Danube, should attempt the bold adventure, which might serve either as an encouragement or as a warning for the rest of the army. In the silence of the night, they swam the Tigris, surprised an unguarded post of the enemy, and displayed at the dawn of the day the signal of their resolution and fortune. The success of this trial disposed the emperor to listen to the promises of his architects, who proposed to construct a floating bridge of the inflated skins of sheep, oxen, and goats, covered with a floor of earth and fascines. Two important days were spent in the ineffectual labor, and the Romans, who already endured the miseries of famine, cast a look of despair on the Tigris, and upon the barbarians, whose numbers and obstinacy increased with the distress of the imperial army. In this hopeless condition, the fainting spirits of the Romans were revived by the sound of peace. The transient presumptions of Sapor had vanished. He observed with serious concern that, in the repetition of doubtful combats, he had lost his most faithful and intrepid nobles, his bravest troops, 
and the greatest part of his train of elephants, when the experienced monarch feared to provoke the resistance of despair, the vicissitudes of fortune, and the unexhausted powers of the Roman Empire, which might soon advance to relieve or to revenge the successor of Julian. The Surenas himself, accompanied by another satrap, appeared in the camp of Jovian, and declared that the clemency of his sovereign was not averse to signify the conditions on which he would consent to spare and to dismiss the Caesar with the relics of his captive army. The hopes of safety subdued the firmness of the Romans. The emperor was compelled by the advice of his council and the cries of his soldiers to embrace the offer of peace, and the prefect Sallust was immediately sent with the general Arinteus to understand the pleasure of the great king. The crafty Persian delayed, under various pretenses, the conclusion of the agreement, started difficulties, required explanations, suggested expedients, receded from his concessions, increased his demands, and wasted four days in the arts of negotiation, till he had consumed the stock of provisions, which yet remained in the camp of the Romans. Had Jovin been capable of executing a bold and prudent measure, he would have continued his march with unremitting diligence, the progress of the treaty would have suspended the attacks of the barbarians, and before the expiration of the fourth day, he might have safely reached the fruitful province of Corduene, at the distance only of one hundred miles. The irresolute emperor, instead of breaking through the toils of the enemy, expected his fate with patient resignation, and accepted the humiliating conditions of peace, which it was no longer in his power to refuse. The five provinces beyond the Tigris, which had been ceded by the grandfather of Sapor, were restored to the Persian monarchy. He acquired, by a single article, the impenetrable city of Nisibis, which had sustained, in three successive sieges, the effort of his arms. Singara, and the castle of the Moors, one of the strongest places of Mesopotamia, were likewise dismembered from the empire. It was considered as an indulgence that the inhabitants of those fortresses were permitted to retire with their effects, but the conqueror rigorously insisted that the Romans should forever abandon the king and kingdom of Armenia. A peace, or rather a long truce of thirty years, was stipulated between the hostile nations, and the faith of the treaty was ratified by solemn notes and religious ceremonies, and hostages of distinguished rank were reciprocally delivered to secure the performance of the conditions. The sophist of Antioch, who saw with indignation the sceptre of his hero in the feeble hand of a Christian successor, professes to admire the moderation of Sapor in contenting himself with so small a portion of the Roman Empire. If he had stretched as far as the Euphrates the claims of his ambition, he might have been secure, says Libanius, of not meeting with a refusal. If he had fixed, as the boundary of Persia, the Orontes, the Sidnus, the Sangarius, or even the Thracian Bosporus, flatterers would not have been wanting in the court of Jovian to convince the timid monarch that his remaining provinces would still afford the most ample gratification of power and luxury. Without adopting in its full force this malicious insinuation, we must acknowledge that the conclusion of so ignominious a treaty was facilitated by the private ambition of Jovian. The obscure domestic, exalted to the throne by fortune rather than by merit, was impatient to escape from the hands of the Persians, that he might prevent the designs of Procopius, who commanded the army of Mesopotamia, and establishes doubtful reign over the legions and provinces which were still ignorant of the hasty and tumultuous choice of the camp beyond the Tigris. In the neighborhood of the same river, at no very considerable distance from the fatal station of Dura, the ten thousand Greeks, without generals or guides or provisions, were abandoned, above twelve hundred miles from their native country, 
to the resentment of a victorious monarch. The difference of their conduct and success depended much more on their character than on their situation. Instead of tamely resigning themselves to the secret deliberations and private use of a single person, the united councils of the Greeks were inspired by the generous enthusiasm of a popular assembly, where the mind of each citizen is filled with the love of glory, the pride of freedom, and the contempt of death. Conscious of their superiority over the barbarians in arms and discipline, they disdained to yield, they refused to capitulate. Every obstacle was surmounted by their patience, courage, and military skill, and the memorable retreat of the ten thousand exposed and insulted the weakness of the Persian monarchy. As the price of his disgraceful concessions, the emperor might perhaps have stipulated that the camp of the hungry Romans should be plentifully supplied, and that they should be permitted to pass the Tigris on the bridge which was constructed by the hands of the Persians. But if Jovian presumed to solicit those equitable terms, they were sternly refused by the haughty tyrant of the East, whose clemency had pardoned the invaders of his country. The Saracens sometimes intercepted the stragglers of the march, but the generals and troops of Sapo respected the cessation of arms, and Jovian was suffered to explore the most convenient place for the passage of the river. The small vessels, which had been saved from the conflagration of the fleet, performed the most essential service, they first conveyed the emperor and his favorites, and afterwards transported, in many successive voyages, a great part of the army. But, as every man was anxious for his personal safety, and apprehensive of being left on the hostile shore, the soldiers, who were too impatient to wait the slow returns of the boat, boldly ventured themselves on light hurdles or inflated skins, and, drawing after them their horses, attempted with various success to swim across the river. Many of these daring adventurers were swallowed by the waves, Many others, who were carried along by the violence of the stream, fell an easy prey to the avarice or cruelty of the wild Arabs, and the loss which the army sustained in the passage of the Tigris was not inferior to the carnage of a day of battle. As soon as the Romans were landed on the western bank, they were delivered from the hostile pursuit of the barbarians, but in a laborious march of two hundred miles over the plains of Mesopotamia, they endured the last extremities of thirst and hunger. They were obliged to traverse the sandy desert, which, in the extent of seventy miles, did not afford a single blade of sweet grass, nor a single spring of fresh water, and the rest of the inhospitable waste was untrod by the footsteps either of friends or enemies. Whenever a small measure of flour could be discovered in the camp, twenty pounds weight were greedily purchased with ten pieces of gold, the beasts of burden were slaughtered and devoured, and the desert was strewed with the arms and baggage of the Roman soldiers, whose tattered garments and meagre countenances displayed their past sufferings and actual misery. A small convoy of provisions advanced to meet the army as far as the castle of Ur, and the supply was the more grateful, since it declared the fidelity of Sebastian and Procopius. At Tilsapata, the emperor most graciously received the generals of Mesopotamia, and the remains of a once flourishing army at length reposed themselves under the walls of Nisibis. The messengers of Jovian had already proclaimed, in the language of flattery, his election, his treaty, and his return, and the new prince had taken the most effectual measures to secure the allegiance of the armies and provinces of Europe, by placing the military command in the hands of those officers who, from motives of interest or inclination, would firmly support the cause of their benefit. The friends of Julian had confidently announced the success of his expedition. They entertained a fond persuasion that the temples of the gods would be enriched with the spoils of the East, that Persia would be reduced to the humble state of a tributary province governed by the laws and magistrates of Rome, 
that the barbarians would adopt the dress and manners and language of their conquerors, and that the youth of Ecbatana and Susa would study the art of rhetoric under Grecian masters. The progress of the arms of Julian interrupted his communication with the empire, and from the moment that he passed the Tigris, his affectionate subjects were ignorant of the fate and fortunes of their prince. The contemplation of fancied triumph was disturbed by the melancholy rumor of his death, and they persisted to doubt, after they could no longer deny, the truth of that fatal event. The messengers of Jovian promulgated the specious tale of a prudent and necessary peace. The voice of fame, louder and more sincere, revealed the disgrace of the emperor and the conditions of the ignominious treaty. The minds of the people were filled with astonishment and grief, with indignation and terror when they were informed that the unworthy successor of Julian relinquished the five provinces which had been acquired by the victory of Galerius, and that he shamefully surrendered to the barbarians the important city of Nibisibis, the firmest bulwark of the provinces of the east. The deep and dangerous question how far as the public fate should be observed when it becomes incompatible with the public safety was freely agitated in popular conversation, and some hopes were entertained that the emperor would redeem his pusillanimous behavior by a splendid act of patriotic perfidy. The inflexible spirit of the Roman Senate had always disclaimed the unequal conditions which were extorted from the distress of their captive armies, and, if it was necessary to satisfy the national honor by delivering the guilty general into the hands of the barbarians, the greatest part of the subjects of Jovian would have cheerfully acquiesced in the precedent of ancient times. But the emperor, whatever might be the limits of his constitutional authority, was the absolute master of the laws and arms of the state, and the same motives which had forced him to subscribe now pressed him to execute the treaty of peace. He was impatient to secure an empire at the expense of a few provinces, and the respectable names of religion and honor concealed the personal fears and ambition of Jovian. Notwithstanding the dutiful solicitations of the inhabitants, decency as well as prudence forbade the emperor to lodge in the palace of Nisibis. But the next morning, after his arrival, Binesis, the ambassador of Persia, entered the place, displayed from the citadel the standard of the great king, and proclaimed in his name the cruel alternative of exile or servitude. The principal citizens of Nisibis, who, till that fatal moment, had confided in the protection of their sovereign, threw themselves at his feet. They conjured him not to abandon, or at least not to deliver, a faithful colony to the rage of a barbarian tyrant, exasperated by the three successive defeats which he had experienced under the walls of Nisibis. They still possessed arms and courage to repel the invaders of their country. They requested only the permission of using them in their own defense, and as soon as they had asserted their independence, they should implore the favor of being again admitted into the ranks of his subjects. Their arguments, their eloquence, their tears, were ineffectual. Jovian alleged, with some confusion, the sanctity of oaths, and, as the reluctance with which he accepted the present of a crown of gold, convinced the citizens of their hopeless condition, the advocate Silvanus was provoked to exclaim, O Emperor, may you thus be crowned by all the cities of your dominions. Jovian, who in a few weeks had assumed the habits of a prince, was displeased with freedom, and offended with truth, and as he reasonably supposed that the discontent of the people might incline them to submit to the Persian government, he published an edict, under pain of death, that they should leave the city within the term of three days. Ammianus has delivered in lively colors the scene of universal despair, which he seems to have viewed with an eye of compassion. The martial youth deserted, with indignant grief, the walls which they had so gloriously defended, 
the disconsolate mourner dropped the last tear over a tomb of a son or husband, which must soon be profaned by the rude hand of a barbarian master, and the aged citizen kissed the threshold and clung to the doors of the house where he had passed the cheerful and careless hours of infancy. The highways were crowned with a trembling multitude. The distinctions of rank and sex and age were lost in a general calamity. Every one strove to bear away some fragment from the wreck of his fortunes, and as they could not command the immediate service of an adequate number of horses or wagons, they were obliged to leave behind them the greatest part of their valuable effects. The savage insensibility of Jovian appears to have exaggerated the hardships of these unhappy fugitives. They were seated, however, in a newly built quarter of Amida, and that rising city, with the reinforcement of a very considerable colony, soon recovered its former splendor, and became the capital of Mesopotamia. Similar orders were dispatched by the emperor for the evacuation of Singara and the castle of the Moors, and for the restitution of the five provinces beyond the Tigris. Sapor enjoyed the glory and the fruits of his victory, and this ignominious peace has justly been considered as a memorable era in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The predecessors of Jovian had sometimes relinquished the dominion of distant and unprofitable provinces, but since the foundation of the city, the genius of Rome, the god Terminus, who guarded the boundaries of the Republic, had never retired before the sword of a victorious enemy. After Jovian had performed those engagements, which the voice of his people might have tempted him to violate, he hastened away from the scene of his disgrace, and proceeded with his whole court to enjoy the luxury of Antioch. Without consulting the dictates of religious zeal, he was prompted by humanity and gratitude to bestow the last honors of the remains of his deceased sovereign, and Procopius, who sincerely bewailed the loss of his kinsman, was removed from the command of the army under the decent pretense of conducting the funeral. The corpse of Julian was transported from Nisibis to Tarsus in a slow march of fifteen days, and as it passed through the cities of the east was saluted by the hostile factions with mournful lamentations and clamorous insults. The pagans all replaced their beloved hero in the rank of the gods whose worship he had restored, while the invectives of the Christians pursued the soul of the apostate to hell and his body to the grave. One party lamented the approaching ruin of their altars, the other celebrated the marvellous deliverance of their church. The Christians applauded in lofty and ambiguous strains the stroke of divine vengeance which had been so long suspended over the guilty head of Julian. They acknowledged that the death of the tyrant, at the instant he expired beyond the Tigris, was revealed to the saints of Egypt, Syria, and Cappadocia, and instead of suffering him to fall by the Persian darts, their indiscretion ascribed the heroic deed to the obscure hand of some mortal, immortal champion of the faith. Such imprudent declarations were eagerly adopted by the malice or credulity of their adversaries, who darkly insinuated or confidently asserted that the governors of the church had instigated and directed the fanaticism of a domestic assassin. Above sixteen years after the death of Julian, the charge was solemnly and vehemently urged in a public oration addressed by Libanius to the emperor Theodosius. His suspicions are unsupported by fact or argument, and we can only esteem the generous zeal of the sophist of Antioch for the cold and neglected ashes of his friend. It was an ancient custom in the funerals, as well as in the triumphs of the Romans, that the voice of praise should be corrected by that of satire and ridicule, and that in the midst of the splendid pageants which displayed the glory of the living or of the dead, their imperfections should not be concealed from the eyes of the world. 
this custom was practised in the funeral of Julian. The comedians, who resented his contempt and aversion for the theatre, exhibited with the applause of a Christian audience the lively and exaggerated representation of the faults and follies of the deceased emperor. His various character and singular manners afforded an ample scope for the pleasantry and ridicule. In the exercise of his uncommon talents, he often descended below the majesty of his rank. Alexander was transformed into Diogenes, the philosopher was degraded into a priest. The purity of his virtue was sullied by excessive vanity. His superstition disturbed the peace and endangered the safety of a mighty empire, and his irregular sallies were the less entitled to indulgence, as they appeared to be the laborious efforts of art or even of affection. The remains of Julian were interred at Tarsus in Cilicia, but his stately tomb, which arose in that city on the banks of the cold and limpid Sydnus, was displeasing to the faithful friends who loved and revered the memory of that extraordinary man. The philosopher expressed a very reasonable wish that the disciple of Plato might have reposed amidst the groves of the academy, while the soldier exclaimed in bolder accents that the ashes of Julian should have been mingled with those of Caesar in the field of Mars and among the ancient monuments of Roman virtue. The history of princes does not very frequently renew the examples of a similar competition. End of chapter 24, part 5. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.